Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Brown and Black. Uh, we will not be talking about our second part of consumerism on this one because we feel that our country is ablaze, our country is suffering, is in pain, uh, just like so many other people right now. And this is a forum that we've created exactly for these moments. And by the way, when we designed this podcast, it wasn't necessarily for this, it was more specifically focused on media. But now it's kind of taken a life of its own, right, Mike? Well, you know, I think the definition of media has changed. I think at one time, TV and radio were the primary sources of information and entertainment. And I think TV and radio have been replaced by social media and podcasts. So we're doing it. And part of what we're going to discuss and what we're able to discuss, both here having a podcast and you being brown and me being black is the conversations that need to be happening in this time. There are conversations that aren't happening and there are conversations that need to happen. And that's what we're going to have here. that the word basura, which is to us... Exactly. You know, exactly. a symbol of disgust and, Dust, and, and, right. and and just kind of repugnancy. And, 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 you, right. and you like the phonetics of it. It's, I do, I do. <laughs> the <you> sonic. <laughs> exactly. It sounds so like you can say it with such... Don't make me invoke the power <laughs> of basura. Of basura. 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 You know, it's like, oh, shit, you know. Hey, listen. Yu-Gi-Oh, watch out. What does it feel when you're in a group of just Latinos and you're the only black guy in there? It really depends on the conversation. From where I'm sitting, I, as a writer, I am fascinated by people, culture. I love to listen. I love to learn. But that's me. That's my personality. So I'm always interested in not the politics in terms of like who public and Democrat, but the people politics, you know, I'm pretty fascinated with how Latinos see themselves, the differences between them, the stuff that like, it took me a long time to be able to tell the, all the differences. Like I can pretty much say, okay, that guy's Mexican, that guy's Dominican. Oh, that guy's, and, okay. and, and, you've, and you've me, done that what through, through what well, markers? Well, just through years of knowing people, it's like, oh, yes, you know, you if you have one Cuban friend and then you meet another Cuban friend and then you start to see and and let's say you're open to Cuban culture, you go to a party at a Cuban friend's house. All of a sudden you understand Cuban culture a little different, like a family party. Yeah, you're going to get you're going to get a taste of Cuban culture. Now, if you go to a Puerto Rican, you're definitely oh, going to get yeah. a taste of Puerto Rican. So so over time, like I said, it depends on the group. To me, it's like, huh. It's all interesting. I think I, I think the thing about uh, Latinos, uh, I guess from an external point of view like yours, is that physically you can't tell us apart anymore. If a Cuban and a Puerto Rican walked into the room and didn't say a word, there's no way I'd, I'd be able to, to pick them out. To me, um, now in terms of the physicality, now you're getting to another part of me. That I'm an artist and, and, and I'm an illustrator. It's what I went to school for. It's what I went to high school, college for. So for me, I'm always looking at features, facial features. I'm, in my mind, I'm always drawing in my mind. You got so that I'm forensic always, eye. 
got that forensic eye. So I'm always looking at facials, identifying features, this and that. What have I learned about this culture, that culture? You know, I, I have this whole theory, like there's only like 57 human types, period. And it's like, you can see, like, you'll see like the Asian Jack, you know, or, you know, you're like, wow, that guy looks just like Jack, but he's Asian. So, I mean, so that's, that's a whole oh, thing man. in itself. But I've been here for a long time now. So Dominicans, Dominican culture, Dominican food, Dominican terms, Dominican, the way Dominicans dress. I could tell you, I could go anywhere out of the country, out of this state and point out the Dominican to you because I, wow. because I, because I've been immersed in it. Now, prior to that, I wouldn't have been able necessarily to tell the difference between Dominican or, or the Puerto Rican or the, or, don't tell that to a Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican would be like, what? You know? Yeah. So, uh, uh, like you said, in that room, it really depends on the room. Like, I'm always fascinated because I've had Colombian friends. I've had Cuban friends. I've had, I definitely have a different understanding. And then if you go to South America at all, like, have you been? You know, Oh yeah, I've been. I've been. I've been. Where Acapulco. you been to? Well, I've been to Acapulco. Acapulco. That was the come one on. Name. No, wait, wait, wait. You just did not say Acapulco, like a <laughs> cultural center for Mexico, dude. Oh, that no, is a land that's created not, for American tourism. Okay, listen. Okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought you were gonna South say like America. Guadalajara. <laughs> no, I wanted to go to Guadalajara. I, I would look. I was in the Acapulco Black Film Festival. They brought. They flew me down to Acapulco. Wow, so. they got a Black Film Festival there. No, they used to back in the day. Wow, back that's in interesting. Day, oh, shoot. You have no idea. It wow. Was, what was that uh, like? We could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> okay. All right, but all the ads, all the people on TV are much lighter than the people who are driving uh, the cabs. Let's not to, even get, I mean, that's yeah, a whole you know, that podcast was, that, that I could just that, get well, into. Exactly, exactly. So that was, that was a whole that was probably eye-opening experience. Eye yeah. But I want to ask you the question you asked me. What is it like for you as a Latino being in a group of like all black people in that all black space? What, what, what? Because I'm Latino and at the age uh, in my 20s, when I started Univision, there was you were living a Latino life. Now, you get the Afro-Latinos where you feel like everyone's black, but you know they're really not African-American black, they're Afro-Latinos, which doesn't necessarily diminish what's happening today, but it, it gave you a visual, physical, your brain registered it like, okay, I'm not amongst whites, I'm amongst blacks or, or brown people. And that was as far as it got. And then one day I started um, reading up on the Harlem Renaissance. And I had a friend of mine by the name of Mario, and he was positioned to win American Idol. So him and I became friends, and he's Puerto Rican, and he had invited me to a party in Harlem. And dude, when I walked in, I felt so out of place. It's almost like I felt like I needed to change my social dynamics to be black. And it's, you know what's fucked up about it? that I think that the first subconscious involuntary reaction is to go to the movies that you saw when you were a kid. You know, I'm going to get you, sucker. Uh, TV shows like In Living Color. And That's to kinda, a very powerful. That's a very powerful statement. Kind of like mimic the language, the accents, slang. That way you can fit in. And I think that comes back down to the Maslow needs of survival where you have to adapt in such a way to an environment where you feel like if you 
are different in this environment, things might not go right, right? Uh, that's a first instinct, by the way. Then your nurture versus your nature kicks in and that program self for you is like, wait a minute, we're living in the, in the 2000s. You know, this is in 1865 or the 1968 racial riots. So everything's cool. I can just be me, you know? And so I, I hooked up with a friend of mine, Mario. And dude, all of a sudden, this fascination to want to be black came to me right after I left the party. Like, I just felt like being black was cooler than being Latino. And dude, I'm, I'm telling you because... I'm saying these truths because this is exactly what I felt at the moment. And I think what happens with, and I'm not going to say all Latinos, but for me particularly, I don't think I ever truly knew who the hell I was. You have to understand, I'm a Latino, I'm a Colombian, right? But I was born in New York. So am I American or am I Colombian? You have these two cultures that are kind of like fighting for your cultural uh, flag. You go to Colombia, you live in Colombia for a few years, you all of a sudden want to be Colombian. You come back to America and you're like, you know what, I just want to be American. And then all of a sudden you come to this hybrid of being Colombian-American. And then you drop the Colombian and you're just American. And then the census comes out and it, it, it... there's so much confusion for a Hispanic that black people don't have to go through. They don't have to go through the layers of, well, you know, I got three parents. The one's from Haitian, the other Dominican, the other one's Puerto Rican, but then I have a little bit of a white, you know, ancestor from Europe. Who the hell are you? Like my DNA says that I'm Spaniard white, I think 30%. And then the other 30% is like Native American, but it's not specific to whether it's North America or South America. And that's important because am I Mayan? Aztec, uh, Navajo, like what part of Native American am I? So these, these lacks, these holes, these blanks in your brain regarding identity give you a sense that you're always in limbo. But the good thing about that is, is that you become a chameleon and you start fitting in any group possible because you've built up, you've constructed this adaptability design to be able to fit in anywhere for survival. So I'm hanging out with a bunch of white people and I sound like very white. There's no way that you're going to tell me that I sound Latino right now, Mike, huh? Right? But if you're amongst a bunch of Dominicans, oh, yeah, mano, pero que lo que? And if you're with the Colombians, oiga, hermano, entonces, entonces, que vamos a hacer aquí, pues, hoy? So accents, you start like, not mastering them, but you start picking up on them. It's a way of vibing, and that vibing, I guess, releases endorphins, oxytocin, uh, the need for friendship, and so forth. So I think it's much more complicated than being black in a Latino group as opposed to being Latino in a black group because you come up with so many, especially when it's a first time, you come out not having a clue what you want or who you are well you know it's very as you're telling me this you made me remember a bunch of things now about being in in an all latino space or if specifically my you know definitely moving up here uh to uh you know what was at that time you know primarily latino primarily dominican area i used to say to people i live in the dominican republic because i am the color i am and I have the features I have. You fit in perfectly. 
Well, now, yeah, a lot of times they speak Spanish to me, and and they thought I was Dominican. They'd speak Spanish to me, and then it was like, okay, well, why don't you speak Spanish? You know, oh, are you one of those that you know that that doesn't speak? Wow! Language? So you had Dominicans challenge yes. you? Let's put it this way: it's it happens within microseconds where it's like they'll start talking to me right away in Spanish, and I don't understand, and and you can tell from the reaction. And again, I can tell from the reaction because I have friends who are Latino, and I know how some Latinos feel about Latinos who have not grown up to know the language while they're here in America. That's a whole other conversation. Right. But, right, right. but, but so, you know, you can tell from the reaction, but again, forgetting the reaction, just the assumption that I was Latino. So I've definitely been, wait, so I'm you aware. felt, you felt like you were Latino at one point while you were black. No, I didn't feel like I was Latino, but I knew that there were those who would think I was. Because that would be interesting to ask African-Americans if you're black living in Washington Heights, did you ever feel that you were so in love with the culture that you were just being a part of and learning from that you wanted to be that culture? Uh, no, but... Is it because being black is so strong? No, but you know, what you're bringing up now is actually brings me into a different area. And, and this is a conversation I've definitely had with black friends. You probably heard me joke to say that uh, in... in with a lot of white people, I was oh, like, yeah. I was like the starter black friend. You know? <laughs> and, and so it's like, the entry hey, Mike, point. I could talk, yeah, I could talk to you. I've always wondered, you know, do, do black people, you know, fill in the blank. And, and so I, I say that to say that I, I'm aware of when I was younger and because you've spoken about this in, in different ways as well. I'm aware that when I was younger, I really used to try and go out of my way to to show uh, white people when I met them that, hey, uh, you know. Nothing to I, be afraid I, of. Nothing to be afraid of. Uh, uh, you know, you, you know, I, I can, re you can relate to me. I can relate to you. Hey, you know, and it wasn't even conscious, but there's this unconscious wanting to be, like you said, you know, you wanting to adapt, wanting to be accepted, wanting to assimilate, you know, and mm -hmm, be part, mm -hmm. part, part of the board collective. And, and, and that's sort of, Ingrown. I mean, let's not get into what we as a people do to straighten our hair or lighten our skin or, you know, any of those things. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you talk about identity. Um, uh, there were, uh, uh, let's just say, certain black folks who, when I was growing up, was, oh, you talk like a white guy. Same you talk here. like a white person. By the way, you know? when I was like and, seven years old living in Rhode Island, Pawtucket, mm -hmm. I... There's a, my mom has a recording of me. One of these days, I'm going to bring it up on the podcast so you can hear how oh, no, pristine you, you American. Will. You will bring that on the podcast because I'll be <laughs> I have to find it because I think it's in a cassette tape and I don't know how to re-digitize I'll be reminding you every episode. Okay, dude, I was, I must've been like eight and my mom was asking me a question and she says, can you roll your R's? And I'm like, I could not, I couldn't ah. do that. I was like, I was like, I love it. I can't seem to roll my art. That's how I white it. I sounded. That's it, a great scene in a movie, right? I realized how that was part of of my warning to, you know, I, it, it meant a lot to me to be able to be that person that you know. I can't tell you how many scenarios where I'd be with some drunk white guys who would get drunk and then just be all over me, hugging me, saying, I love this guy. And and I knew it was them discovering they could have, wow. and when I say love, 
Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, I, I I remember it vividly. Okay, from my youth. Okay, uh, as especially you know working places, and because I was much more often in an all white space. I was very. I can't tell you how many times I was the only black person in a white space. But how did you get into that, that many white spaces, man? I never really did. Well, first of all, I I I, I had the unique experience of. of and I know this now that is unique, like at a young age, knowing I wanted to be an artist and committed to that. So I went to the high school of art and design, which was here uh, in Manhattan. Yeah. You know, it was a period where, you know, there's a lot happening in the city. And then I went to college. I went to Parsons. So, you know, so I was always in the city. I was always in Manhattan. I was always in spaces. I had always had white friends, artists, friends, I, always, always, all, all my life. And so I, again, and I would be that friend, that, that black friend that, that they bring that like, wow, look. Look, look at him. You know, you can meet him. So what, like you know, a zoo animal? Yeah, like a zoo animal. They brought me on a leash. No, I'm kidding. I'm just saying that in terms of being accepted, and you know this, into white culture, into white spaces, that someone brings you. You know, you don't just show up. Someone brings right. You, you. have to be invited. You, know, you have to be invited, or the friends of somebody that. And you it's know, like a and, members and, club, bro. And, uh, right, and it's not like I went to like KKK meetings. It's like you know, I'd go to a party, or function, event, or whatever it is, and and again, I'd be the only black person. Now, it's one of those things like you 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 know, you don't walk in going, "Hey, are there any else here?" But then you know, as you start to move amongst the crowd, you realize, "Huh." And then you might spot one more person and you both give that nod of like, huh, you're here too, you know? Yeah. And, and, what, and what, what, what kind of common thread would be amongst the blacks within those white spaces? Oh, dude, that's a whole episode. I have so many <laughs> friends. This is an ongoing conversation with black friends. But I mean, again, I had a response for those who would say to me that you sound like a white guy or you sound like a white person. And, 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 and again, this is after hearing it so many times. And my response was, well, I... I've heard many white people who don't sound like me. So, but what you're really saying is I sound intelligent. So if you think to sound intelligent sounds white, white then who's really been brainwashed? Brother, this is what I've gone through. Um, especially when I was at Univision starting out my career. Like, why didn't I have an accent? And automatically, and dude, I, I'm not going to tell you that someone said this to me in my face. But the actions speak louder than louder than words. Essentially, they treated me like, you know, you have a window here because you're not really us. You're not and really down. You're not really Latino down. Yeah. But yeah, by the way, yeah, I didn't think yeah. that was a superiority flex. I think it was more of an, in, an inferiority flex by them kind of letting you know, mm -hmm. this is all we got, Jack. We can't go to ABC. Yeah, but that's you. hindsight. You didn't you didn't know that. No, but I knew that I had the option. And mm. I just wasn't flexing it hard enough to do it. Mm. Dude, come on, man. I, one of the reasons that I became popular in New York amongst my Hispanic community in the Hispanic media business was because I was the first guy doing traffic reports that spoke Spanglish with an American accent. So they were like, wait a minute. Out for years, uh, between the years of 1998 to 2000, I used to do traffic reports in New York on major radio stations. Everyone thought I was an L.A. dude, surfer, blonde hair, blue eyed with a tan, and was just down with the Latino crowd. 
And wow. I was like, where did that come from? He goes, your Sur- accent. Surfer Jack. Surfer Jack. Surfer Jack. Yeah. Surfer Jack. Surfer Jack. Yeah. And so I was like, what? So I think when people started seeing me, they were like, nah, I can't believe it. And then, of course, I have like a made up name that sounds like a made up name, Jack Rico, even though it's a real, real name. I know the feeling. Believe me. Mike I know Sergeant. Feeling. I yeah. know. People say that to me all the time, too. So. This is why I have identity confusion as a Hispanic. I mean, I don't think I have it anymore. I, I think I know who I am now. But that took a lot of studying and self-analysis to kind of get to where I am today. Well, I have one question. Mm-hmm. Who are you, Jack <laughs> <laughs> By the way, so, so how have you been, man? Like, you and I have not had a chance to talk since the riots our last episode was on consumerism, and then the world fucking changed, man. Well, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on on this. What but, stands but, out the most? What is the thing that's keeping you up at night the most? Well, you know, it's interesting you say uh, keeping you up because I literally, last night, certain things occurred to me. I didn't sleep last know, night. Certain things occurred to me. And, and you know, why fan the flames of unrest during a pandemic? Okay, why do that? Why fan the flames of of civil unrest during a pandemic when people being out there it's that that's more than likely to to get them sick. But then you think, okay, well, if the people who primarily, we all know this now, the statistics everybody knows, it is people of color, brown and black people who are dying the most. Now, if we have a reason to get the brown and black people out there, and and we can fan that and we can keep that going. So if you look back at 1918 and what happened. With the Spanish what happened, flu pandemic? Right, the Spanish flu pandemic. After you had the first wave, well, World War One ended. All these soldiers came home and people had been cooped up and they, they, they just wanted to celebrate the fact that their their soldiers, their loved ones were home. And so they went into the streets and they celebrated, even though there was still a pandemic. And guess what? What we're going to see two, three weeks from now is almost a mirror of what happened in 1918. So a second wave. Oh, but a second wave that will be five times much more, the entire country. But specifically, specifically, who's out there marching? Blacks and browns. By by the way, white people, though. A lot of white people. And and, and I think, I think, just just, just before. Stay with me. Okay. Stay with me. Oh, man, I'm so passionate about this. A lot of white people, but guess what they all have in common? They're all people who would not vote for Trump. And they're all young. People that do not agree with their parents, that with their grandparents or their ancestry in any way. And they want to kind of cleanse themselves off of that. And this, this protest has allowed them to have that outlet that they couldn't do before. Well, you know, I, I, I understand like you said, the the desire of of white people to assert their their position, the ones who are down, the ones who are support, uh, I, I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of respect for that, and and but I also I don't know about you, uh, probably maybe not like me, but you know I have a lot of white friends, and I've had a lot of them reach out to me, and and I could they kind of fall into two groups. They're the ones who reach out and they go, wow, what do you think of what's going on? What, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? And, and how do you think I could help? And then there's the, oh, 
you know, it's awful what happened, but how, how is this going to help? How, how are the, how, how is looting and, and almost how like is, defensive? Uh, well, it, it's, it's way deeper than that, in my opinion, but it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. I understand both perspectives, but I also realize that they, they don't get it either. They don't get, uh, you know, why looting? I mean, I could go off on that, but, uh, and they also, they're only seeing a part of the picture. Right now, if we've talked about as well, the media, CNNs, whatever, Fox News, whoever, they're only going to show a certain amount. It's edited, it's brought in, it's 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 written, copy written for whatever. Who's who's the executive producer of a lot of these newscasts, man, that are in charge of the images that are being completely depicted that's on media? Obvious. They're that's obviously not brown and black people. Clearly, clearly, that's why I'm saying the unfiltered news is on social media. That's yes. where the news is. That's uh, where the real, the, the the people's news is. That's where the people's news is. It's it's, it's, it's Twitter. It's, just, it's social media. No, it's Twitter. It's Instagram. It, it's Facebook Live. That's where people are. That's where news is being made. That's where news is happening. When you see a clip in the news, they it's, got they it got from, it from social media, right? Social media, yeah. right? That's the on the ground, and on the on the ground, a lot of people don't consume especially people who are over a certain age especially people of a, a certain you know financial uh, uh or class or whatever you want to call it yeah. background you know we live in this this thing we can call it the economy we could call it we can call it capitalism we can call it all these things but but this is the system we live in and as we've seen those at the top and those at the bottom are in two different worlds even when things get completely fucked up those at the top are making more money and those at the bottom are losing more in every aspect so, healthcare in every, in every aspect yeah, yeah, politically so yeah. it's just but there is a push to keep that system in place this whole reaction here is in reaction to that system to loot is is the least of it the, what is the difference between confederate statue that represents oppression and a story you'll never be able to afford to shop in they're both monuments of oppression. They're the same thing. So not that I condone. Looting. Well, this goes back to our consumerism. Well, there, uh, that's exactly where it goes. Like back consumerism to was 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 uh, was a vanity pastime for the whites, Absolutely. for the rich, for the wealthy. And and we've all watched. And pardon the phrase here. We've all watched the hijacking of a cause. So let me get this straight. Are you saying that the whites that are protesting have hijacked that? Not just the whites, agitators that have come in to agitate, the police that are undercover, the ones, no one from Black Lives Matter ever would paint graffiti, ever. There's no point to that. That's not the message. The only people who paint Black Lives Matter, kill cops, are the people who are white, who are writing it to put pit one against the other. The ones who are looking for the civil war, the ones who are looking for the clash. You've been seeing these ads from luxury brands. Oh my God, it's so embarrassing, Mike. They're all sending out messages, marketing messages. The CEO is writing to a company that then gets a press release and then it goes out on social media. We're here to support Black Lives Matters, but they're white CEOs. And I think one of the one of the ones that kind of started the whole thing was like Anna Wintour's Vogue uh, article where she says, we need a white, uh, a black uh, VP right now. And everyone's going, Anna Wintour, 
How many black or minority senior executives do you surround yourself with? How many of them have you hired? Who's your successor? So there's so many of them that are jumping uh, the bandwagon for the cause, yet they're hypocrites to a certain extent because they don't even apply those same rules to their own companies, probably not even to their own social lives. Listen, absolutely, absolutely. That that that. But again, that comes back to the hijacking. The hijacking. I was going to get into like the five levels of hijacking. You know, there's there's the the agitators, the ones who want to just see the unrest. There are those who are profiting from it. I mean, you know, everything you can imagine that embraces. You know, you talk about consumerism. You know, there's there's masked porn. A friend of mine told me now. I mean, so where people are wearing masks. So and if you th- everything can be commodified. Okay, but in the terms of this protest, what I what I definitely see is, uh, you know, people who have an agenda because they wait till night, you know, and what a better time in a time where everybody's wearing masks, you know, and who who runs around in a gas mask dressed in black, just breaking windows just for the hell of it. Uh, what is that going to do? Right. Well, exactly. That's a straight up, you know, and and so then there are also cops in there as well because it helps just them justify doing what they're doing. There are videos out there that are horrifying. You've horrifying sent them to, to me. Think. Bro, yes. I, it, they're so it's, repugnant. I, I, I can't even exactly. begin to tell you how you can't, you my can't view of reality it. has been completely altered. It's been altered to the point where right. I don't even know what reality is right now. Is it this right. terror? Or is it this fantasy that I kind of grew up with as a kid? I mean, obviously that fantasy no longer exists and it hasn't existed for years. But now the, 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 the visceral, visible reality of hate is so fucking strong, Mike, that, that well, I, it, it's, it's doing something to me. And I'm sure that I'm just a proxy for so many other people that are feeling the same exact thing. It's an interesting situation. Well, listen, I, you know, uh, there, there is one thing that I want to ask you that has to do with, you know, with me and my culture as well is right now, what I've been seeing on Twitter is where do Afro-Latinos lie in this cause? But, but, but right now, if you're Afro-Latino, are you Black Lives Matter? Or are you Latino and you know what? This isn't really your cause at the moment, but thank you for the support, but you ain't really black. What is the stands of blacks with Afro-Latinos? I have two friends in particular who are Afro-Latino. We have this conversation all the time. In my estimation, if you're Afro-Latino, okay, you don't have a choice. You know, you, you, you are going to be seen by white people as black, whether you want to be or not, whether you hate black people or you think they're cool, okay? Yeah. You're going to be seen that way. You're Afro-Latino. You are dark. You cannot hide your darkness, okay? Uh, And so as a result, you know, when you are part of something that is – let's just say oppressed or affected or, or you, you, you know, that is political, you know, in the true meaning of the word politic, uh, you have no choice but to be political. You, you have no choice but to, t- to choose a side whether you want to or not. And uh, uh, life has given you the side you have to be on, you know. And when I say have to be on, that's not to say if you're a man, you can't stand up for female rights or anything. I'm just saying when it comes to the racial politics – my take on being Afro-Latino is that, you know, you really, you know, maybe when you're young, you can be like Doja Cat and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and try and do what we, you know, I see Doja Cat as, as the extreme version of, 
of what you and I experience, where we're trying to fit in, we're trying to find a way to to be accepted, to assimilate into whatever environment we're in. You know, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's my take on on a Doja Cat. But so so that that's 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 what I think. I th- I think Afro Latinos, uh, I I think they have to be aware of how they're seen and and what their place is in this racial. Lexus. And you know what's 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 very depressing? If you're born in the Dominican Republic and you're Haitian and you're black Haitian, you have to deal with not only your your country's racism, the Dominicans' racism, but then you come to New York in America and then you have to deal with the fact that you're a different type of black for different reasons to white people. So you're getting almost double the amount of racial hate from two different countries and two different cultures. And their argument is, who the hell's talking about us? And they feel that this moment is a moment that they can have a small little window to get their voice out. All right, I realized something here. We were really going to jump into part one of our consumerism because everything we're talking about, the whole looting, I was really going to get to uh, how you know this country was built on looting. I mean, how do you colonize? You were just talking about all this colonization and 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 w- what is colonization without looting and destroying a culture? That's that's basically what it is to colonize. One, one of the one of the most powerful things I heard someone say. I think you might have actually even sent it to me was this young uh, black activist um, who had the camera on her. And she said, where do you think we learned looting from? Exactly. Where do you think we learned violence from? We learned it from the whites. Because what do you think whites did? And I'm not just talking about white Americans. European whites mostly are the root of all this hate and racism. They came in here and through looting their culture, their religions, their women, uh, their land... And then the violence of genocide, essentially, of a whole Native American population and the trying to genocide of a whole black population in America and throughout the world, um, that's where looting, that's where blacks, according to her, learned looting and violence. And I thought that was so, so on the money on a historical level that that really brought sort of almost everything into focus for me. Don't talk to us about looting. Y'all are the looters. America has looted black people. America looted the Native Americans when they first came here. So looting is what you do. We learned it from you. We learned violence from you. We learned violence from you. The violence was what we learned from you. So if you want us to do better, then damn it, you do better. Everything you're saying is correct, and I think that that's part of why we wanted to examine consumerism, because it's one of those invisible structures in our lives that is controlling us. It is controlling our desire, our desire. Why do we care? Why do we need shoes from this Mm -hmm, store? Why do we mm want to have a product from that store? Because it represents something we can't have. It represents us gaining something that, that is not even real, that has nothing to do with being a better human or being a better person in general. It has all to do with principles of consumerism that make us slaves to whatever we're being told we need to buy or we need to aspire to, we need to save for, we need to go into debt for. Well, with that said, I'm Jack Rico and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown and I am black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast. Talk to you next week.
Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. 